We are in Ezekiel 43. The original plan was to go through 43 and 44. We will just be taking on the remainder of chapter 43 here today. And we are going to dip into some of the boring chapters of Leviticus. Some of those ones that people say, why in the world is this stuff in here? I'm going to show you probably what could be terminized as the most useless scripture in the Bible. Hopefully that perks some of your interest as to what we will get in here tonight. Let's uh, pick up here at Ezekiel chapter 43. And let's uh, go over here, verse 7. Verse, we cover 1 through 5. Let's pick up at verse 6, I'm sorry. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings or their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger, now let me put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Now Solomon made a dedication speech at the opening of the first temple. God makes one here at the opening of this temple. He says in verse 7 that God will dwell in his temple. Verse 7, and we read that, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of my soles and my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Is he speaking here of dwelling in this particular temple or dwelling in this particular land. If you believe that this is just figurative, then uh, then his description of the temple is just figurative, then you may fall more on the side to where he's going to dwell in this temple forever. If you look at this as a temple that is temporary before the next one is set up, then you may look at this being in the land but those are the two ways that you could look at that. I would probably tend to say he's going to be more dwelling in this land because I don't see this as a permanent temple. And But he is, he's talking about the things they had done before and he wants to put distance between them and the sins that they had done before so that he can dwell with them forever. In Revelation 21 and verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. So this is, this is the Revelation 21, of course, the end, towards the end of the book. This is talking about a permanent dwelling. And we know that the new Jerusalem, of course, will come down. There will be a permanent dwelling that will be there. But even after millennial reign, the earth is going to go through a remake and then will be re-inhabited after that. Verse 10 of Ezekiel. Son of man, describe... I'm going to be talking fast today because we have a whole lot to get through. And if I go really fast, we might be done 15 minutes late. <laughs> but we have to go. Here's the danger. Y'all gave me an... Well, I took it. I guess y'all didn't give it to me. I took an extra week on this, and um, so I had a lot more time to, to, to stay to, to study this. And just for kicks, I listened to about 10 hours of lectures, not sermons, lectures by rabbis on Levitical law. 
for the purpose of understanding something, it'll probably take me five or ten minutes to tell you. But I wanted to make sure I got it right. <laughs> so, but we're going to be going through here at Ezekiel. We're going to cover Le- Leviticus chapter 13. We're going to cover Leviticus chapter 14. We're going to cover a score of scriptures in the New, in the New Testament. And we're also going to take a look at the entire ministry of Jesus after the resurrection. That's all tonight. Verse 10, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement. It exists, it's, I'm sorry, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down on their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is the most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. So God wants them to see the pattern. He's, he's giving them some measurements. He's giving them some, some laws. There's going to be some ceremony. And he wants them to be following these things. In verse, um, this, uh, describing the temple, this is describing a separation of God and the holiness of God. That, that holiness requires a separation. They need to separate themselves from those things they had done in the past if they want to be united to God. And God needs them to have this separation. The idea here of these verses is to spur the people on into this separation. First Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as, you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, you are a holy nation. Second Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. This, met, this uh, thing of being unclean will come up here later on. Let's go on to verse 13. Uh, wrote in your outline, there's a pattern for his people to follow, and this follows what Hebrews tells us in verses, uh, verse 5 of chapter 8. Can you pull that up? I didn't, I didn't bring that one into my outline. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. God is into people following the pattern. He gave Moses the pattern. Moses saw what was there. God gave him the pattern. He said, make sure that you do it. God's doing the same thing here. He's, he's telling him about a pattern. Verse 13, These are the measurements of the altar in cubits. The cubit is one cubit and a hand breadth and a base one cubit high and one cubit wide with a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar from the base on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits, and the width of the ledge, one cubit. The altar hearth is four cubits high with four horns extending upwards from the north, from the hearth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, square at its four corners. The ledge, 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides with a rim of half a cubit around it. Its base, one cubit all around, and its steps face toward the east. Can you pull up our, our picture of the one the one altar. This is the, uh, go to the one with just the single altar on it. If we can, that's uh, going to be a different, um, this one will work first. 
So this is one artist's rendition. The steps that go up, depending upon which uh, artist rendition you look at, some of them only have it going up to this area here so that the altar part of it up here does not have any steps going to it. Uh, I don't know which one is, is, is correct or right, but you'll see different things. That way, this particular one, they had the steps going all the way up to the top. This top here is the altar where the burnt offerings are made. That is a person there. It is this particular altar, Ezekiel's altar, is 24 feet this way and 24 feet this way. It's 24 feet square. By comparison, Solomon's altar is 30 feet square by 30 feet square. So it is Solomon's altar was bigger than this one is. They are both, and I believe that's 15 feet high. 15, can you imagine an altar 15 feet high? That's why, of course, you need the steps. So you have the different stages here. Solomon's altar does not have these different levels. On uh, this one, it was talking about a trough that would go around. That's presumably to catch the blood that would be coming off of there. And uh, that's what it would be, be doing. This is the shortest of the sections down there at the bottom. I believe it was only one cubit in height. And these two, the two top ones are the same. I believe they're two cubits in, in height. Or no, I'm sorry, they're four cubits in height. Uh, altogether 15 feet. So this is what it would look like. It is just a little smaller than Solomon's. Still a pretty good size altar. I mean, 24, 24 feet. So this is the description that he gives them of it. Now the altar was a symbol of uh, consequences of sin. Because you would come up here and you would bring your, your altar. Now imagine you have to carry, as a priest, you've got to carry those sacrifices. 15 feet up the stairs, sacrifice them, and then come on back down. Every day you're bringing up sacrifices, you're going 15 feet up, upstairs, and then and back down again. Um, that would be, basically, I would say we would probably call that about two stories. So imagine if you were on the ground floor taking it up to the second floor without the elevator. You're carrying bulls, you're carrying goats, you're carrying some big things. And uh, this is what the priest would do. Now, of course, for the, this particular altar, you didn't have to be the high priest. You could be any, any of the priests could be working this. With Ezekiel, he is limiting the altar sacrifices to the priest of Zadok. They have to be of the lineage of, of Zadok in order to be able to, to do that. When you would come up and you would bring the burnt offering and you would you would burn it, you are basically making this, uh, this, you're not going to get it back. I mean, it's burned. It is gone. You would take the offering and you would turn it into smoke. So the smoke would go up into heaven, much like in the incense, the, the incense would go up into heaven. And, uh, and then Word of God talks about him smelling the incense. So what happens is the altar would be turned into smoke and would go up into heavens. And so it would then be, uh, uh, communicate to God in his invisible realm. Just as he would get the incense, he would get the smoke from the, the offerings. And so that's why they would do it this way. Some of the offerings were, were completely burned. Some of them were not. And uh, the ones that were completely burned, of course, you're not going to get it back. Let's go over to... Give me that one you had before with the multiple off, uh, altars on it. We'll show you what these look like. And I did run out of time. I didn't get to load these up on the face for the Facebook people. So if anyone's watching from Facebook and would like to see these better than maybe you can see it on the TV, just uh, leave me a note and I will send them over to you. This is 
Solomon's altar, and of course he made it, it is made out of nicer materials. Ezekiel's is made out of stone. This one looks all bright and shiny. Uh, this one is not bright and shiny, but you'll see that it has it's a little more, a little more elaborate in the uh, sides of it. All of them have the what's called the horns of the altar or the protrusions up at the corners. Uh, before you would have things like this, this one right here, they would make an altar. Any stone would do as long as it was big enough to hold the sacrifice. So you can make an altar out of any stone as long as that stone could hold the bull or the ram or the goat or whatever it is that you're using. Uh, this is a rectangular mound of sod clay or mud brick. Uh, uh, God commanded Moses to build this, this kind of altar in Exodus chapter 20. This is one that is a worked stone. They would cut the stone out and they would make this. This was, um, uh, was one like this found over in Beersheba. And this is the movable one that they would have when they would pick this up and they would carry it as they were going through the wilderness. So these are some of the other altars that were there. Let's go continue to read here in verse 18. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances of the altar on the day when it is made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling butter on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites who were of the seed of Zadok, who approached me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it, or make an atonement for the altar. Then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priest shall throw salt on them. This was done a lot in the laws of Leviticus. The salt was involved. And they will offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. Every day for seven days, you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. They also shall prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days. This is just the consecration of the altar. This is to get the altar ready for service. So this new altar, this particular altar in Ezekiel, is going to go through this seven-day ceremony to consecrate it for use. Each day had a specific sacrifice or the same sacrifices for each of the seven days. But every day something is being sacrificed. Blood is being spilled. Things are being burned every single day. Verse 26, seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar and I will accept you, says the Lord. On the eighth day and thereafter, seven days was worked, uh, was consecrated for this altar. After that, the eighth day comes and on the eighth day, there are no more sacrifices to consecrate the altar. From that point on, the sacrifices are to consecrate the people. You did not have to go through this on a yearly basis. This is a one-time thing for the altar. And after this, the altar was put into service. But it was not put into service at all until this was done. All these things had had to go on. But you'll see here, on the eighth day and thereafter, that your priest shall offer the burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord. Now, the eighth day is, in the word of God, the day of new beginnings. Circumcision was on the eighth day. That is, that is one. The eighth day would occur after every seven day feast. 
there would be a day of new beginnings. After each Sabbath, there would be the eighth day, which is the day of new beginnings. After the land Sabbath, the land had its Sabbath every seven year, there would be a land Sabbath. After a, after a set of seven Sabbaths for the land, what came? The year of Jubilee, which is in the 50th year, which signified a new beginning. Eight is the number of the Messiah, because the Messiah represents new beginnings. And we're also going to see that it is very much associated with leprosy. And here's where we get into the really fun scriptures. Now, if any of you as I read these think they are boring, please remember, (laughs) I sat through many an hour of lecture on these things just to make sure we understood and got these things right. I am not going to give you everything that I heard. I would love to give you some of this stuff that I was hearing of these things, but um, I'm trying to trim it down and keep it to where we can we can get this um, out here for you. In verse 1 of Leviticus 13, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, then he shall be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons, the priest. The priest shall examine the sore on the skin of the body, and if the hair on the sore has turned white, and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a leprous sore. Now, one of the one of the rabbis I was listening to, he was going over this, he was actually a, I guess you wouldn't call him a rabbi, you'd call him a priest, because uh, he believes in the New Testament. Uh, he said some things and maybe pulled my hair out of my... Figuratively. (laughs) This one priest, he actually made the statement. He said, God does not speak to anyone. And if anyone says they heard from God, they are a liar. Yeah. He said other things too. But see, I wanted to get their perspective because they have a better perspective on the Levitical law than I have. Because they had, uh, you know, they passed down a lot of things that uh, didn't get passed down to me. So I wanted to hear some of the things they had to say so I could understand this. And so um, he would go through here and whenever he would say this, it is a leprous sore. It sounded like he said it was a leprosore. <laughs> Every time he said it, it, it kept coming out that way. And I had to retrain my brain to keep hearing. He means leprous sore. Then the priest shall examine him and pronounce him unclean. So you're going to take a look at the sore that's on the skin of the body. If the hair on the sore had turned white, there is, I, I could not write all this down, but some of the rabbis were giving me some things on this, on these words that are in this passage of Leviticus 13, and it was intriguing. But they just would throw out these, these Hebrew words, and I don't have a grasp of the Hebrew. Uh, if they said it in Greek, it would be so much easier for me to grab. But he would say these words in Hebrew. And what they were able to portray from the um, uh, description in the Hebrew on leprosy. Uh, they pulled out some interesting things on this term white. And the, the Hebrew word that was used for this. Very interesting. Very very intriguing as to, to what it would, would do. But I didn't uh, try and write that down. But there are certain descriptions of leprosy. Some of it would call it puffed up. And they actually said this relates to the sin of pride. 
And another one, he talked about how it would, uh, when he talked about a scab, I think the Hebrew word for scab, and he said this would be drawn together. And he, he, he um, actually went through and tied leprosy and all the words that were used to describe it to the three sins in the New Testament, the, um, the lust of the eyes, um, the boastful pride of the, I remember just uh, out of my head, lust of the eyes, Lust of, the flesh, lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, and they attribute it to each of those, each of those sins. I thought, wow, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. I don't know Hebrew that well, and I sure can't pronounce it the way that they all did. But uh, I just throw that out there to you. If you're interested in, it, you could probably go out there and find it yourself and listen to some hours of lecture by rabbis yourself. But the priest shall examine him and pronounce him unclean. But at the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin and its hair has not turned white. Then the priest shall isolate the one who has the sore seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if indeed the sore appears to be as it was, the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him another seven days. Then the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And indeed, if the sore has faded and the sore has not spread on the skin and the priest shall pronounce him clean, it is only a scab and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab should should at all spread over the skin after he has seen, been seen by the priest for his cleansing, he shall be seen by the priest again. And if the priest sees that the scab has indeed spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprosy. When the leprous sore is on a person, then he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the swelling on the skin is white, and it has turned the hair white, and there is a spot of raw flesh in the swelling, it is an old leprosy on the skin of his body. The priest shall pronounce him unclean, and shall not not isolate him, for he is unclean. So in this particular case, there's no reason to isolate him and bring him back. He's already been declared unclean. It's already been declared leprosy. So we would go through and and we keep on reading these, these scriptures. I think we're leaving off of verse 11. But if you kept on going through here, you're going to see the same thing. Here, here's the description of the, of the sore. If it meets this description, if the hair is this color, if the scab, if the swelling, if all these different things are, are laid out, and you can know exactly if it is leprosy. Now, sometimes people have thought that the reason that leprosy is treated this way is because we don't want the rest of the camp, the rest of the people being infected. So the best thing to do is to take the person who's infected by leprosy and isolate them. However, if the purpose of isolating someone who was leprous was for the protection of the camp, are there not other diseases that they could have done the same thing for? So why is it only leprosy that the book of Leviticus spends all this time telling you this is leprosy. If it is, you need to isolate them. And if uh, you are a leprous person and someone was coming upon you, you had to say, unclean, unclean. You had to declare that so the people wouldn't come up to you and become unclean themselves. Let's go on. I'm just going to skip around here. In verse 24, if the body receives a burn on its skin by fire and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a bright spot, reddish white or white. And then it begins to describe what would happen here. And if it goes this particular way, it's leprosy. If it doesn't go this particular way, it's just a burn. They're not unclean. But again, we would go through some periods of isolation. Seven days you would be isolated. On the seventh day, you would be examined by the priest. 
And if they saw certain things, you could go into another seven-day isolation period until they would hit a spot where they say, all right, we know for certain this is leprosy. We don't need any more isolation. You are unclean. And they would be declared unclean. Or, this does not meet the qualifications of leprosy. Therefore, you are clean. And you would go that way. In verse 29, if a man or a woman, this is the time that the woman is, is brought in, has a sore on the head or the beard. Now, not too many women have beards. But from what I'm told, this is really, refer, even with the man, it's referring not to the beard, but the area where the beard would cover or the chin. So that's what, that's what it would be. That's why the man or woman can be, be brought up here. Then the priest shall examine the sore, and indeed, if it appears deeper than the skin, and there is in it thin yellow hair, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a scaly leprosy of the head or beard. But if the priest examines the scaly score, sore, and indeed it does not appear deeper than the skin, and there is no black hair in it, then the priest shall isolate the one who has the scale seven days, and on the seventh day the priest shall examine the sword, and indeed if the scale has not spread, and there is no yellow hair in it, then the scale does not appear deeper than the skin. He shall shave himself, but the scale he shall not shave. This is so you don't aggravate or stir up that area, and by shaving it you can cause some of the the conditions that might make it appear leprous. And the priest shall isolate the one who has the scale another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall examine the scale. And indeed, if the scale has not spread over the skin and does not appear deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scale should spread all over the skin after his cleansing, then the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the scale has spread over the skin, the priest need not seek for yellow hair. He is unclean. We don't need to go into that deep detail. He's, a, he's unclean. But as the scale appears to be at a standstill and there is black hair grown up in it, the scale has healed, he is clean, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. In verse 47 through 59, even garments are described in the area of leprosy. Apparently the, the garment could get leprosy. Now how many of you have ever thought, how in the world can a garment get leprosy? And uh, according to some of the rabbis, this would actually be be considered by the people then, this would actually be considered an act of God. That the that the cloak the, the clothing that you would have would um, would have this leprosy on it. I don't know if it ever occurred that uh, if if um, uh, people had to do this, but of course their clothes took up a much bigger part of their budget than it does for us. If we get a uh, piece of clothing, and it has a spot on it we can't get out. We generally tend to chuck it. I don't need that anymore. Uh, You know, it doesn't cost that much. We'll just throw it away and get another one. Uh, But if you can imagine that those those clothes took you a long time to earn enough money to to get or whatever it is you had to go through to to do that, you'd try and preserve it a little bit more. And so they would, uh, that's why they would go through all this and try to, try to preserve it. But even the garments were listed. And I'm not able to, to spend the time on it here, but if you could, you could do some things just with this and the, going over into the New Testament. So if you're wondering why he spends so much time on these garments, you could do a uh, tie over into the New Testament and see why they, they would be there. But, um, we're gonna keep on going here. But there's a very detailed list of things that must be met. These are very specific requirements. And you need to uh, 
fulfill these requirements in order to be declared unclean. So a person is either clean or unclean. There's really no middle ground. Either you are clean or you are not clean. But they don't make haste to declare you unclean, nor do they make haste to declare you clean. If something comes up and there is a question, they spend time to make sure they get it right. And each time they come and they make a judgment and they decide, we cannot determine yet whether this is leprosy or not. So we will go into how many days? Seven days. We will go through a seven-day period. At the end of the seventh day, on the seventh day, we would then be investigating it. This is the theme throughout this whole thing. On the seventh day, the leper would be checked out. He would not be checked out on day five, day six, day four, day three. He could not come to him and say, hey, things have changed. Let me get it examined now. It it didn't matter. We don't care if things have changed in two days. We want to see what happens in seven days. Because just because we see a change here in two days doesn't mean that uh, it it won't change back. We want seven days. So if you're going to operate by the law, you've got to operate seven days. This is what will happen. All right, let's keep going. Now, they're brought to a priest. They're not brought to a doctor. Wouldn't you think that a doctor would be better qualified than a priest to determine a medical issue? But you see, what we're examining here and what what this is a type of is not a medical condition. And this is why a priest is brought in. There is There are destructive sin and false doctrine and they will follow certain patterns. And the sin of leprosy is like this type of destructive sin and false doctrine that once it got into a person, you had to make sure they were able to get it out. Because if you did not get that sin, certain sins, not all sins, certain sins or certain false doctrines, if they got into a person, they would begin to spread and they would begin to affect. And this is something you'll see with the leprosy. If you were to go through the rest of the things we're not going to be going through here, you will see if there is no change things are dealt differently because leprosy, if it's truly leprosy, is expected to bring continual change. It continually works on the healthy skin to turn the healthy skin into unhealthy skin and to spread. And uh, some, I mean, there's different types of leprosy and you can read a, a whole articles and probably in books on leprosy and, and uh, what it was and how it would affect people, but you would have uh, people that would lose arms, lose limbs, uh, and uh, certain organs would would uh, stop functioning. This is what, the, what would kill them, is this leprosy would spread around. It didn't just stay by itself. If it was truly leprosy, it affected this spot over here, but it would begin to grow and begin to move. And that's why we gave it seven days. We want to see, does it grow? Is it moving? Is something happening? And if it was, then it was called leprosy. All right, you're unclean. And once we made that determination that you are unclean, you were put out of the camp. You no, no longer be in the camp. You can no longer see your family. You didn't have a job anymore. You couldn't uh, do all those things. Now, other nations didn't do this. This is how Israel de- uh, dealt with it and how Israel was to operate. Now, not all sin and not all false doctrine is the same. There are sometimes people are just mistaken in their doctrine. It's not a false doctrine. And this is why the careful examination needs to be brought up. 
Because sometimes, how many of y'all know, we're not all, we're not all straight in our doctrine. Apollos, we know from the Word of God, he was not straight in his doctrine. He had some things messed up. But people took him aside and said, hey, you don't have all this right. Let us help you out with this. Then they helped him out. He became one of the foremost teachers in the New Testament. He was very well known and he became a great teacher among them. But uh, what he had wasn't false doctrine. What he had was mistaken doctrine. There were some mistakes in his understanding. There was some uh, a lack in some understanding. But he was open to it being changed. But Paul dealt with some people who had some true false doctrine. And he said that their message would spread like a cancer. And it would spread to other people. So these are the ones that the priests needed to examine and say, this is false doctrine. We need, you are unclean. And that person needed to accept, I am unclean, in order to get healed. You can't get healed unless you are uh, first off, declare that, well, I'm unclean. But there are people, Paul dealt with them, they had false doctrine, he declared them to be unclean, and they didn't accept it. And then people would go out there and they would follow after these, these same things. And uh, they would they would go in the same direction as well. When we saw those verses of Scripture that deal with the head, the head is dealt differently as it represents the leaders and the heads who gave, gave in to the false doctrine. If you were a leader... And there's some parts in Scripture that say, uh, if you had leprosy and you were declared clean of it and then it came back, that's it. You're done. No more, no more future examinations. It is over. Imagine how harsh that is. What he's saying here is, is this. You may be a head. You may be someone that's a, a leader. And if you fell into leprosy once and then got healed of it, fine. But if you fell into it again, you're, it's over. You are no longer ahead. That's how God dealt with it. So if you wonder why all those rules and all those lists are put in there, he is trying to, to teach people how severe this is and uh, you know, don't fall into this as those those heads should not have fallen into it. I have another scripture for that in just a moment. We'll get to it. So there's a lot of isolation so that a person can receive correction. So in the same way that a leper would be isolated, someone who fell into a sin of this type, of, that was of this level. Not all sin is of the level of leprosy. Not all false doctrine or wrong doctrine is of the level of leprosy. But when it is suspected that it is, we need to isolate. We need to put this... Uh, Put this aside and observe it and see what it does. And if it gives off those indications, then we will, we will do so. Now the Old Testament view was that only by an act of God can healing be brought in for one who is leprous. Only by an act of God. And if you were looking at false doctrine, because they got some revelation only by an act of God are you going to cure that person. Because they need to have that revelation come into their spirit to enlighten them they have gone in the wrong way. How many people do you know can go up to people and say, hey, you're, you're following the wrong path. No, no, I'm not. They need God to speak to them. Just as leprosy needed a divine intervention for something to happen to it in the same way, this, these types of sins and these types of false doctrines need divine intervention. 
Now there's a bad leprosy. Uh, the bad leprosy, of course, is the kind that changes. There is uh, some things that say, well, this this, this leprosy isn't uh, is isn't the same type, isn't the same level. So you're going to see good good and bad in that. But um, there is some sin and some doctrine that just it, it, when you I'm, I'm putting it this way when you accept one of this one of these sins that's considered to be a leprous sin, it gets in you and it begins to change you so that you accept other sins and you go down another another direction. And so people who, who accept, and a lot of the sexual sins are in this category. So people who accepted, all right, well, I'm going to live my life immorally this way and then that immorality leads to another immorality and then that leads to another immorality and then pretty soon things that you wouldn't have thought they would have done, now they're doing them because it infected them and it took over one thing after another. Same thing with false doctrines. False doctrines will do the same thing. Once you embrace certain false doctrines and it leads over to another false doctrine, that leads over to another false doctrine, that leads over to another false doctrine. Those people aren't going to go around saying unclean, unclean. Now I want to take you over to what I might consider to be one of the most useless scriptures. In the Word of God. I'll define what I mean by that in just a, just a little bit, but in Leviticus chapter 14, and you can go back home and, and read the rest of chapter 13 and get excited about reading it. <laughs> when you understand what it's, what it's doing. But here in chapter 14, these are the rituals of cleansing. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall examine him. So once a person was declared to be leprous, they went out of the camp and they can't come back into the camp. Say, hey, I'm better. There shall be the law of the leper for his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall examine him. And, and indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. The cedar wood, the scarlet, and the hyssop are thought to be making some type of a brush in which you would take the blood and sprinkle it. If you're wondering why they're in there. And the priest shall command. That's one of the benefits of my lectures. <laughs> and the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and dip them in a living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. He shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. He who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and wash himself in water that he may be clean. After that, he shall come into the camp and shall stay outside his tent seven days. So he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and wash himself in water, and that he may be clean after he shall come into the camp and, and shall stay outside his tent for how long? Seven days. But on the seventh day he shall shave all the hair off his head, his beard and his eyebrows. All his hair he shall shave off. He shall wash his clothes and wash his body in water, and he shall be clean. On the eighth day... He shall take two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, and one log of oil. And then the priest who makes him clean, or declares him to be clean, 
shall present the man who is to be made clean and those things before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall take one male lamb and offer it as a trespass offering and a log of oil and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then he shall kill the lamb in the place where he kills the sin offering and the burnt offering in the holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest, so is the trespass offering. It is most holy. How often do you think this word, this uh, scripture was used? Throughout the word of God in the Old Testament, we only have one person who was healed of, of leprosy. And he was not an Israelite, so he did not go through this ritual. It seems to be so rare that when the king is approached by Naaman, the king of Israel, is approached by Naaman about being healed, he said, Am I God? That was the king's words. Am I God? Because they viewed that only God could heal this, this particular disease. And it would seem that the, if the healing would, would happen, wouldn't you at least hold out hope that maybe this could come about? Jesus' words in Luke chapter 4 and verse 27, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha. How many? Many. many. The prophet. And none of them was cleansed. Huh. None of them was cleansed. Just Naaman the Syrian. Now that may just be for the time of Elisha. But for the time of Elisha's ministry, which was spanned over a lot of years, no one but Naaman was healed. So that means no one went through Leviticus 14. And if it was, as, it was, if it was super rare, hardly ever happened, or didn't happen at all, is this not the most useless scripture in the scripture? And if God knew that not, this is not going to happen a whole lot of time, why did he spend so much time on telling you how to handle people who get healed? Well, I thought that was a good question. Now, here's one of those verses in Leviticus that can blow your socks off. You know there aren't many, I'm sure, right? You're probably thinking that. Verse 14. The priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, and the priest shall put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Now, how many times have you read through Leviticus and just kind of skimmed through this? And, well, all right, that's what he's supposed to be doing. Exodus chapter 29 and verse 20. This is speaking of the anointing of the priest. Then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. There are only two people who received this anointing. The sons of Aaron and those healed of leprosy. That is it. If you were a king 
And there's only three groups of people that are anointed in Scripture. The priests, the kings, and the lepers who are healed. But the priests and the lepers are the only ones who share this anointing. The king gets the anointing where they are anointed on their head. In fact, it is said by the rabbis that the priests were anointed on their head with an X or the sign of, of uh, charis, the, uh, uh, the, the anointing. It was, it's an X in Greek. I don't think they had an X in Greek, but that was the shape and they just sort of thought it kind of corresponded to the, to the cross, but it's also to the Greek letter that starts the name of Christ, the anointing. I've talked to you about it before. When people see Xmas, people think that they're putting X in there to, re- to replace Christ. They aren't. That's the first letter of his name. The anointed. And so that's where that, that came from. I still don't like Xmas. But <laughs> I, I still say the, the full thing. But kings were anointed. Not all, not all kings were anointed. Kings were anointed when they were new. When they were the first one in line, like Saul. Saul was the first one in line. David was the first one in line. When succession was disputed or was in doubt, Solomon, there was succession there, was in doubt. There was his brother who tried to take the throne. And so he was anointed to show that he was, uh, he was the one. Uh, you see that also with Joash because his mother, uh, the, the queen mother was trying to take the throne. And so he was anointed in that place. Jehoaz was another one. So if the anointing was, or if, if taking over the succession of the kingship was in doubt or if it was disputed, then the king who came to the throne was anointed. Otherwise, um, if you just had the son of the king take the throne, there's no anointing. But the priests were anointed. And every person who was a leper was anointed and they were anointed in the exact same way. How were they anointed again? On the tip of the right ear. On the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. According to the rabbis, this symbolizes what you hear, what you do, and where you go. Now in the New Testament, Revelations chapter 2, verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest of Thyatira as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan as they say I will put on you no other burden. So here is somebody who operated in that type of sin, in that type of doctrine. You had both going on. That they were in sexual immoral, immoral sins and they were teaching things 
that were not right. He gave her time to repent. She had her time of isolation. She didn't repent. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, it says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. There's a process. And just as a leper was to be compared to, here's what is leprosy, here's what is not leprosy, and you need to make careful examination. Then the same way, you need to make careful examination on those people before you lay hands on them and send them into being in the ministry. Now, most people in the Word of God are healed. When Jesus came up to the, to the blind man, the blind man was healed. When he came up to the man who was lame, the lame man was healed. When you come up to, to the person with the fever, Peter's mother-in-law with the fever, she was healed. When the woman with the issue of blood, she was healed. When we come to the leper and the leper says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He said, I am willing. Be thou cleansed. Healing is used for everything except leprosy. If you are a leper, you are cleansed, not healed. Isn't that interesting? Now, I wanted to spend some time looking at Jesus. What happened to him after his resurrection? After we've gone through all these things in Leviticus? It will give us some understanding on the ministry of Jesus here at the end. In John chapter 20, these are not in your outline. You can write down whatever you want or just come up here and take a picture of it later on. Whatever you want to do, there was just no room. I had to eliminate a whole, whole mess of stuff. John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18, we have that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. That is on the day that he was resurrected. She came down to the tomb, found it empty. Later on, the other Mary, Salome, Joanna, and, the, and one other woman in Matthew 28.1, Mark 16.1, and Luke 24.10. This is still on the same day, the day he resurrected. Simon Peter, Luke 24.34, and 1 Corinthians 15.5. On the same day that he was resurrected. It is not stated that it's the first day that he was resurrected, but we know that these events unfolded on the first day of the resurrection. Cleopas and a companion on the road to Damascus in Luke chapter 24, 13 through 35. This is on the day of the resurrection. Seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This is John chapter 21. We are not told what day this was. This is sometime after the resurrection. Matthew 28. 16 through 17 and 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, we have the disciples in a large gathering at the mountain in Galilee. This again is sometime after the resurrection. James, he appeared to James in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. We're told about that. Again, this is sometime after the resurrection. But on none of these are we given any of the days. We know that it was the first ones were on the day of resurrection because this is the day it was that all this was going on. None of them mentioned that it's the first day of the resurrection. None of them mentioned uh, what day it was when these other other things went on. In Luke chapter 24, 49 to 53, and Acts 1, 3 through 11, this is on the 40th day. 
This is when he ascended to the disciples. We know this because this is the last day that he was there and he ascended up on high. And so we know what day it was. But it's interesting that we're not told anywhere in here what day these things occurred. We're just left to deduct it from the things that had gone on around until we get to John chapter 20 and verse 26. It starts off this way. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. You reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So let me paint you a picture here. We have one, two, three, four, about five different showings of Jesus on the day of his resurrection. And then nothing. No one sees him until the Word of God says, and after eight days. After eight days of what? After eight days from the last time they saw him. So what you have is that Jesus is gone for seven days. And on the eighth day, he appears to the disciples. He appeared to the disciples on the first day. And he doesn't appear again until the eighth day. What does he do? Well, folks, according to the pattern of the book of Leviticus, he went to the Father. And the Father looked at him on the first day and said, I don't see any mark of the leprosy. Remain here for seven days. And at the end of seven days, we will investigate again. And on the seventh day, he was declared free of any of the sin that was put upon him when he was on the cross. He was examined on the first day and said, you are free from all that sin. But stay here because that was the pattern in the book of Leviticus. And then on the seventh day, he came to the Father and he said, Father, here I am. And the Father came to him and looked at him and he said, there is no sign of any of the sin. You are clean. And on the eighth day is the day of new beginnings in which he comes down to the disciples and says, here I am. There is no other time that we are told the day that he appeared to his disciples or to any other person. Only this one. On the eighth day. Because the eighth day meant something to every person in that room. They knew the eighth day because of the book of Leviticus. The eighth day means the day of new beginnings. This is the day when he would have been declared clean. 
and had been clean for seven days. Because once you are investigated and there's a change, oh, I see, there is a change, I don't see it now. You had to be in isolation for seven days. And then you would be presented. And then on the eighth day. So Jesus was declared, despite all the other things that we know about Jesus and what happened, we know that he was investigated by the Father on the day that he was resurrected. Remember what he says to Mary, I have not yet ascended to my Father. So he ascended to the Father. And the Father said, I do not see any of the sin, any of the leprosy. Seven days later, he investigated again. And on the eighth day, the day of new beginnings. Here we go. So the Father did the same thing to the Son that is depicted in those boring chapters in Leviticus. So we do all that to get to this point. We, as believers, because God has called us to be priests, He's called us to be priests. Which means we go under that anointing that Aaron and his sons had. But we also had the anointing because we came out of sin. Don't be too quick to pronounce leprosy on the people that are around you. This is something that Christians do way too often. We see somebody who operates a certain way, acts a certain way, says a certain thing, and we write them off. And we treat them as unclean. We've not taken close inspection. We've not spent the time to find out, does it meet the things that Scripture says? Sometimes it's just the way they carry themselves, something that we heard something that we think, something we feel that God inspired us. And we make a declaration on the inside and we declare that person to us. They are unclean. We haven't spent the time to examine them. But we're trying to operate in the role of a priest. We haven't done what a priest should do. We all love to say, I am a priest, I am king, I am a king and a priest. But do we really like to operate in the ministry of a priest? Because this is what they had to do. If someone thought they had leprosy, they would have to check this out. It's too often believers, we look at others like an Old Testament person would look at a leper. We pronounce quickly, without careful examination, to what the Word of God would call false doctrine or the maybe that we declare that they're a wolf. But are we prepared to take people who have fallen into true false doctrine and true sin that the Word of God talks about? Are we prepared to give them an eighth day new beginning as they did? Because you as a priest, you're supposed to be anointed in what you hear, what you do, and where you go. Now think about this for a moment. 
I said that Leviticus 14 may be the most unused scripture and, and all, that, all that time. Can you imagine when Jesus comes on the scene and the leper says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I am willing. Remember when he sends the ten to the priest, go show yourself to the priest and make the offering. These priests who have never had to go through Leviticus 14 for anyone, suddenly, here's ten. Here's another one over here. Here's this one. How many other lepers he healed? We don't know. They are suddenly inundated with people who want to go through Leviticus 14. And they've never gone through it. Their dads never went through it. Their grandfathers never went through it. Who was the last person who ever had to do this? And now all of a sudden, they got to dust off Leviticus 14. Look at what they're supposed to do for someone that is healed. Can you imagine the disruption in the priesthood that would go on? When first off, the one guy shows up. But then 10 at the same time. Would that not have blown their socks off? And yet, they came against Jesus. And yet, he had done stuff that they had never seen. Caused them to operate in priestly ministry they never had to operate in before. They had to go through the rituals of what to do with someone who is cleaned, someone who is pure. And Jesus, his heavenly Father, went through the same thing with him. And on the eighth day, he appeared to his disciples and to Thomas. Father, we thank you for the day of new beginnings. We thank you that each one of us has had a day of new beginnings. A day where the sin of the past was left behind. We embarked on a new life. I thank you we don't have to have an eighth day continually. But when we need an eighth day, there are ways for that to happen. There are people in our life that maybe we have written off as leprous and we have stayed away from them. But we need to help them out. There are people maybe that are leprous and we haven't spotted them. Some of their sin, some of their attitude, some of their doctrine is brushing off on us. Father, these are determinations we need to make in the Spirit after careful examination with the Word of God. Because just as in the Old Testament, you gave very specific detailed instructions on how to do this because it was important. In the New Testament, you have given us very detailed instructions on how to spot those that are false, how to spot those that have wrong doctrine, and those that are involved in sin that will spread like cancer. I thank you, Father, for the wisdom that you give us in these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.